0: Well, this morning we're continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, the coming of the King, where we're looking at the first four chapters of the Gospel according to Luke. You know, this practice of uh, of this church and several Reformed churches of trying to preach text by text, narrative of narrative, is something known as Lectio Continuum, and it's a, a traditional practice among Reformed congregations, and that's something that we're committed to doing and that I'm going to do this summer, and that's why we'll encounter in, in, a, in a few weeks a text on Jeannie and that still is the very Word of God, and we're going to preach through it. So we're excited about this series and about these, uh, the next few months working through the Gospel according to Luke, so the, the first four chapters, that is. And you'll also be hearing um, some professors from RTS, and then some of our elders will be preaching. They'll have the pulpit and be preaching as well, too. Well, today, <clears throat> continuing in Luke, we're looking at Luke 1, 26 through 38. So would you please turn with me in the text? Uh, it's also printed in your bulletin. Should be on the, uh, there we go. It's on the projector and on the screen as well. And follow along with me as I read. I'll be reading out of the ESV version. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us, uh, given us it this morning, that we have the chance to sing it, to preach it, to proclaim it in our worship service this morning. And as we, as we proclaim, as we hear the text proclaimed this morning, I pray that you would meet us by your Holy Spirit. Would you encourage those of us who are downcast? Would you humble us, those of us who are prideful, and might all of us walk away today knowing that you are the God who saves in Jesus Christ and you are supremely good. You are worthy of all that we have to bring before you, for you are our God. We pray this all in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, next week, like I said at the outset, we'll be continuing in Luke by looking at Mary's song, this mag- magnificent text that follows uh, the text we're looking at today. It's called the Magnificat, it's a Latin term for it. But I want us to take a sneak preview of this text right now, specifically just one short phrase as an entry point into the text we're looking at today. Uh, the Magnificat can be found, late. Uh, uh, few verses later in Luke's gospel in 146 through 55. And as we'll see next week, the Magnificat is Mary's song of praise. It's her rejoicing over what God has done in her life right now in the text we're reading today and what he will do in her life. And it's also her song of praise for what God has done in the lives of his people more broadly and what he will do in the lives of his people. In our text today, Mary hears what God is going to do, she submits to it, And then in the Magnificat, she rejoices over it. She rejoices over who God is. And specifically for our purposes this morning, she rejoices that God is a God who has filled the hungry with good things. That's a part we read in the Magnificat in 153, where Mary sings out, he, God, has filled the hungry with good things. That is a a good commentary, one of many things that we could say of what God is doing to Mary in our text this morning. Now, this idea of fullness or of living a full and satisfied life is, I think, the aim of just about every person who has ever existed, right? Right? Philosopher, physicist, Christian apologist, and mathematician Blaise Pascal, he did quite a lot in his life, a very accomplished man, he sums up this principle well when he writes this. He writes, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves." So whether we call it human flourishing, we call it fullness, we call it wholeness, there's a strong collocation, a strong relationship between all of those words that we're using. This is, generally speaking, our aim. I don't think any of us here want to live a life that's emptied of all joy and contentment, right? Yet even though the aim of just about everyone, even though largely our aim, is to live a a full life, so often we end up with a sense of emptiness, don't we? We aim at fullness. We rightly want to flourish as human beings. That's what we are created to do. Yet the end product of all our striving doesn't seem to measure up to our expectations. And as a result, we end up spinning our wheels, spinning our tires, endlessly seeking and striving to be filled, yet continually coming up empty, dry, and wanting. But when this cycle of of spinning our wheels and coming up dry becomes a commentary on our lives, the problem isn't that we seek fullness or human flourishing. That's, in fact, a good thing to be seeking. The problem is what informs our concept of human flourishing or fullness. And let me explain. Protestant reformer Martin Luther, a name I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with, in the Heidelberg Disputation, it was a debate he engaged in in the year 1518. It's right right at the start of the Protestant Reformation. At this debate, he distinguishes between what's called a theology of glory, to use his words, and a theology of the cross. Two contrasting ideals, theology of glory and a theology of the cross. Simply put, a theology of glory is a way to fullness, we might say, that prizes human strength and believes that in order to win, we have to assert ourselves. We have to assert our power and our influence over others. And even that um, unbiblical notion of God helps those who help themselves would be wrapped up in what we would call or term a theology of glory. But on the other hand, a theology of the cross, which is what Luther advocates for at the Heidelberg Disputation, is a way to fullness that boasts in our weakness. It's the way of humility. It's the way of self-sacrifice. It's a way of losing so that others might win. The problem, then, is that when we think of fullness, something that we should all rightly want, we so often espouse a theology of glory rather than a theology of the cross. Yet Christ didn't follow the way of glory or the theology of glory, to use Luther's terms, did he? Christ, as Paul tells us in Philippians, as Gabe read it for us this morning in the the scripture reading, Christ emptied himself. Though he had every right to pursue a theology of glory, the only one who really had the right to pursue a theology of glory, he instead chose the cross, didn't he? Though Christ could have asserted his rights as the son of God, as the very one who was in the form of God, he instead chose humility for our sake. And we, friends, are likewise called to take up our cross and follow him. And so this brings us to our text this morning, where we find the almost backward, upside-down nature of biblical fullness. We find that biblical fullness isn't achieved through, is not achieved through a theology of glory. It's achieved through a theology of the cross. And our passage today tells us that this backward path to fullness begins by embracing our need it then moves to identify who the true king that we bow down to and worship is and then it embraces in a lifelong daily rhythms of our life it embraces Jesus Christ as this king so first the path to fullness begins by embracing our need when we stop to consider the setting of this text this morning, especially in contrast to the story that just came before, remember a couple of weeks ago we read this incredible story of Zechariah in the temple, uh, in Herod's temple, this grand structure, and the angel Gabriel comes to him and announces that something is going on. Well, in contrast to that story, what we find is even though this story is spectacular in that it's the birth, it's the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. It's the announcement of Jesus Christ. At the same time, there's something incredibly unspectacular about this text today, too. Zechariah's encounter, as I just said, with Gabriel, it's set not only in Jerusalem, it's set in the theological center of Jerusalem, in the grand structure of Herod's temple that pilgrimages would go to. Yet Mary's encounter takes place in the backwater regions of Galilee and in this no-name town of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was so obscure that it's never mentioned in the Old Testament even once. And the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote quite a bit about first century history of Israel, doesn't mention Nazareth at all. And to top it all off, for those who knew Nazareth, the city of Nazareth or the town of Nazareth, it mustn't have had a good reputation either. Consider that in John's gospel, in chapter one of John's gospel, when Philip says to Nathanael, we have found this man, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathanael responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Clearly, even when Nazareth was known, it wasn't held in high regard. Another contrast we find in our story today as compared to the one we touched two weeks ago is in the individual to whom Gabriel approaches. In the previous passage, the angel came to a priest, albeit an average Joe priest, as we talked about with Zechariah, was one of 18,000 priests, but he was a priest nevertheless. Zechariah was also a man, which was a leg up in such a society too. And the exalted evaluation, if you remember from that text, is telling. We read that Zechariah was a man who was righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Quite a description of piety for this man. Well, in contrast to Zechariah, now we meet Mary, who was first and foremost a woman, which was not a leg up in such a society. And second, she's a virgin betrothed, as the text tells us. And this means that she was legally, at this point, the wife of Joseph. But the ceremony where Joseph would take his wife Mary home to consummate the marriage and to be his wife was still a year away. And although Luke doesn't tell us Mary's age, it's possible that Mary was as young as 12 years old or just barely into her teenage years, her early teenage years. Arkent Kent Hughes, uh, PCA commentator on the Gospel of Luke, he writes this about this whole situation of Mary and where we're at at this point in the Gospel. He writes, from all indicators, Mary's life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, never travel further than a few miles from home, and one day die, like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Just from looking at the setting at the outset of the gospel, before we even get to this grand announcement by the angel Gabriel, just by looking at the setting, it's clear that this narrative oozes humility, doesn't it? The news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the greatest news we might say that's ever been proclaimed, comes to a backwater town, to a girl who's barely a teenager, if she's even that, the recipient of this most spectacular salvific blessing is not that spectacular at all. But in this way, Mary serves as a model for recipients of salvation like you and I. Throughout the gospel accounts, specifically through Luke, since that's the, text where, or that's the gospel we're preaching from this summer, recipients of salvation are those who are pictured as coming to an end of themselves. Therefore, they're those who come to terms with their neediness and they embrace their humble estate recipients of salvation are like Mary in, their, in that they're those who exclaim, as Mary does later in the Magnificat, for God has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. There are those who know in far more than just a cognitive sense their neediness and the world's neediness for intervention, for God's intervention, in order to have some semblance of hope. Oftentimes, in Luke's gospel, typical theme in Luke, is that those who see their neediness, embrace it, and consequently embrace Christ, are those who are the socially outcasts, the margins of society, or those who are materially poor, those we might say like Mary. Because it's these people who are especially aware of the helplessness, and the humble estate, and the meekness that they find themselves in. But we also find, through the grace of God, that there's, there are others as well who appear in Luke's gospel who are needy and who know their neediness despite appearances. Consider, for an example, Zacchaeus. This guy, Zacchaeus. I'm, I'm saying a little song about Zacchaeus, about the man in a tree. I can't remember all of it, but you know, a pretty typical story. Sorry, I'm. going uh, out in the middle of nowhere right now. But consider Zacchaeus. He appears later in Luke's gospel, in Luke 19, uh, several chapters later. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, Zacchaeus was this man in a tree. He was a chief tax collector, and he was consequently a wealthy man, as the text tells us later in Luke 19. And even though the position of tax collector in such a society was somewhat of a despised position, um, it was also a financially affluent position as well. Uh, they were, these tax collectors were in cahoots with the Roman government, which meant that their pockets would, would be well supplied, and even though they were despised somewhat by their own people, they were also very well off financially. Well, in Luke 19, Zacchaeus is someone who, although wealthy, and although he's doing pretty pretty well financially, it's clear that he's also aware of the reality of his need, It's telling that even before Jesus speaks a word to him, he's intrigued by this Jesus. He's intrigued by who he is and what he's about. And all indications are that he's not intrigued because he thought Jesus was going to wow him as if he's some part of a carnival exhibition. Rather, Zacchaeus is a man who knows he's needy, despite his affluent financial state, which prompts him to run ahead and see Jesus. And and we can, you can go on and read the text in Luke 19. It's an awesome text. But when Jesus confronts Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is explicitly undone in person. Both Mary, who we're talking about primarily in this text, and Zac- Zacchaeus as an example, are coming from vastly different social strata, we might say. Yet both, by the grace of God, are pictured as embracing and as welcoming the reality of their neediness. The story of both of these individuals leads us to consider how about us? Do we see our neediness? Friends, some of us are like Mary and like the poor in the gospel, according to Luke. Some of us know quite well our neediness. Maybe we've been confronted with our sin in some pretty provocative ways, or maybe our relationships with others, those even we love, are in disarray or just kind of holding on by a thread. Or maybe there there hasn't been anything that you've particularly done wrong, but you're just more aware for whatever reason of the vivid reality that we live in a sinful and a fallen world. If this explains you, it doesn't take much convincing that things aren't the way they're supposed to be and that you have a need, a need that requires far more than just a superficial fix or temporary patchwork. But there's also many of us like Zacchaeus who are largely, we're doing pretty well, and there's not a whole lot that we can't fix on our own. Even though everything might not be perfect, after all, we're living in a sinful, fallen world. Nothing will ever be perfect. There are still some of us who, in in a general way, we have a sense of security and self-sufficiency, and things are going pretty well in our lives. And then there are no doubt those of us who fall on some, somewhere on this continuum between Mary and Zacchaeus, if we're looking at them as sort of contrasting in where they come from from a social standpoint. But whether your life oozes the explicit humility of Mary, her humble estate, as we read, or whether you're in a socially advantageous position where things are going quite well, do you, in fact, see, first of all, that each one of us were actually very needy individuals? And then as a corollary, do you see the reality of what exactly it is that we need? First, we're needing individuals in that regardless of how morally outstanding we are, how much we give away to the poor, how well we treat our children or our spouse, that's not enough to win God's favor. It's just not enough. It's not good enough. We're needy individuals in that the things that we cling to for meaning and security, the things that we think are going to fill us, so often leave us empty. We're needy individuals in that none of us are charming enough or skillful enough to ultimately avoid death. We're needy individuals whose only hope isn't in our own goodness or in how successful our children are or anything else. Our only hope is in the intervening work of God on our behalf. That's the reality of what we need, of our need. And true fullness begins by embracing the reality of our neediness like Mary, despite the gloss on the surface of our lives. But also recognizing the reality of our neediness, recognizing it for what it is and calling it out for what it is, isn't isn't at the same time embracing hopelessness, is it? By recognizing and embracing our need, we're also entrusting our hope to someone else. We're entrusting that God is the God who will bring life out of death. And if you're a Christian, he's already done that in your life, hasn't he? He's created you, made you a new creature. And because he's done such a work of filling us, of reorienting our heart's desire, and even though it's a sanctifying process and we're still in the midst of that, we can still respond like Zacchaeus does later in Luke 19, a passage that I would encourage you to look at after the service today, where Zacchaeus meets Christ and he's explicitly undone. He knows he's needy, he knows he's helpless, but at the same time, he's not hopeless because he meets Jesus Christ. The beginning of fullness, though, is recognizing and embracing the reality of our neediness, calling it out for what it is. And this leads to our second point. Second, this path to fullness that all of us are on and that we all want, the path to biblical fullness identifies the true king. Look at this description of Jesus found in one thirty-two through 33 again. Let me just read it again, reorient ourselves to the text. The angel Gabriel announces to Mary Who exactly her son would be. And he says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This grand announcement from the angel Gabriel is clearly the announcement of the coming of a king. It's a regal announcement. Though it's also clear that this king wouldn't be like the corrupt King Herod, who's ruling in Israel's midst at the time. This king would be the long-awaited Messiah, the king who was at Israel's hopes, the center of Israel's hopes for restoration. This is the announcement of the messianic king and the messianic age, the one who God promised would come from the lineage of David all the way back in 2 Samuel 7 and punctuated throughout the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament. Furthermore, this king wasn't going to be just a great king who would institute a few policies that then hastily get, after, get tossed aside after his death. This king would be the eternal son of God whose reign would never end. Nothing would bring his kingdom to an end once it's established. And this is an important point to keep in mind as we continue through Luke's gospel, as we continue through it this summer, and as you continue through it, reading it on your own. Because what we find As we proceed through the gospel accounts, through Luke in particular, isn't as shocking as it should be, because we know the ending to the story, right? And the gospel writers even assume that you know the ending to the story. They're after all, they're written to Christian communities. But let's just say we're alien readers coming at this narrative for the first time, and we hear this amazing proclamation about the coming of a king from the angel Gabriel, whose rule would never end, what would we expect to find? Well, we would probably expect to find a king who vanquishes his enemies and who builds a loyal following of thousands and thousands, maybe even of armed militants, as he goes town to town in Judea and in Galilee. But what we instead find as we read through the Gospels is that as resistance continues to mount, this apparent tension builds between who this king is declared to be by the angel Gabriel in our text this morning and where the narrative leads us. On the one hand, this is the angel Gabriel Announcing the coming of the messianic king. This is the same angel who we're told in the previous passage stands stands before God. He stands in the very throne room of God. This is the angel Gabriel, the same angel who came to Daniel all the way back in the book of Daniel. Of course, his words could be trusted, right? This is Gabriel. But on the other hand, as tension builds throughout the gospel, maybe we begin to question. Angel Gabriel's words, if we're that alien reader. How in the world, this alien reader might say, could all of this work out the way Gabriel says? Well, you and I, friends, we know the ending, we know the answer. It would be through the humiliation of the cross, through losing in order to win, so to speak, that Christ would be victorious and then glorified. This king's everlasting rule comes through being despised by the power brokers in Israel comes through abandonment. It comes through suffering and death. But through death, this king brings new life. New life would spring forth for people like you and I, those of humble estate, those who don't deserve it and the kingdom of God would be established. And it, wouldn't, and it would be a kingdom that powerfully overtakes evil, while at the same time gently, wel- gently welcoming the poor and the needy and the outcast. It would be a kingdom whose king reigns in the very throne room of God at the right hand of the Father, yet at the same time a kingdom where the king manifests his presence by, his spirits, by, his, by the Holy Spirit to his vice regents, you and I. Such a king as this is Jesus Christ, the one we meet in the scriptures and in the gospels particularly. This Jesus demands our allegiance. By virtue of who he is, he demands that we bring all that we are before him. When we take stock of who this Jesus really is that we're called to give ourselves to, we're implicitly, in a sense, also called to take stock of those other kings or those other narratives in our lives that are vying for our allegiance, those things that are competing for our loyalty. And what we find when we just think about all of those other kings or other pseudo-gods that are competing for our loyalty in the daily rhythms of our lives, what we find is that they're virtually endless. There's a virtually endless amount of things competing for our loyalty. James K.A. Smith, an author that Jeff has quoted in the past in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, opens up for us the reality of just how many of these pseudo kings, we might say, that we encounter in everyday life, these pseudo kings that are vying for our allegiance. And as just one example, he dissects the shopping mall as an example, one among many that's a cultural artifact trying to form us into a certain type of people. In short, the shopping mall, he argues, and he he uses a a few other examples too, the shopping mall is calling us to bow to the god of consumerism. Smith, in his book, he, he creatively and skillfully paints this picture of the mall's tactics, Through the use of billboards, pop-ups on the internet, and through TV commercials, we find the mall's evangelism strategy, we might say, where it bids us to come and partake and feast. It also has a, a theology of human nature where it shows us in subtle ways, what's wrong with you and I. It's our image. And it has a plan of salvation, a very workspace plan where we come and we consume. We worship the God of consumerism in order to be saved from our poor image. Now, let me say at the outset, I'm not, saying, I'm not trying to convince us to stay away from the malls or the outlets. I do my shopping up at, up at St. Augustine outlets and you could f- feel free to purchase your grab bags or whatever they're called for the Nicaragua trip outside. So um, you can consume in those ways. But really what I'm just trying to paint for us is that this is, the mall is just one cultural artifact. It's one among many, one among en- an endless amount of cultural artifacts that those seemingly innocent is still trying to form us into people who worship another god. It's trying to form us into a people who worship, in this case, the god of consumerism. It tries to instill in us an idea of fullness, namely that we'll be satisfied full individuals when we give ourselves to unbridled consumerism and when we form ourselves into a person that projects a positive image as defined by 21st century American culture. And through its marketing strategy and the aesthetics it employs, it does a very good job at its evangelism, right? So my point in this is, do you realize, friends, even as we gaze at the beauty of the Lord, even as we sit under the preached word, even as we read scripture and fall in love with the beauty of who Christ is, do you realize at the same time how many other gods, how many other kings are subtly wooing us to embrace another god? but whereas these other kings, these other false gods demand our allegiance by telling us that we won't be accepted, we won't be good enough unless we consume, for instance, Jesus is a king who gave himself so that we could be accepted. Jesus is a king who doesn't tell us to endlessly work. He doesn't tell us to endlessly strive or labor for acceptance. He's a king who identifies with his people by becoming man, who became humble in order to identify with those of us of humble estate. I love what a, a, commentator, a commentator on uh, Luke, Daryl Bach, writes, he writes, but the fact that Jesus' birth was like any other common birth says a lot about the great lengths God goes in order to identify with the most humble people of the world. God may be the God of the universe, but he is no elitist. Our king is a king who's met us in our weakness. And he's a king supremely worthy of our allegiance, the only one supremely worthy of our allegiance. So the path to fullness identifies who the king is, implicitly identifies what these other false kings and false gods are, and it identifies and worships Jesus as that true king, the only one worthy of our worship. And this leads to our third point. The way of fullness relates relates in our daily rhythms, in our lives, as we walk with Christ, it relates to Christ as king. And after after Mary has this incredible encounter with the angel Gabriel, we read this beautiful mark of surrender to the will of God in verse 38. Let me just read it again for us. We read Mary say, after the angel Gabriel announces all of this stuff, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now Mary's response is an exemplary response I think we can all agree to. But at the same time, what we might miss in this is it's also an incredibly costly response. When Mary became pregnant, uh, Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew weighs in on this a lot. When Mary became pregnant, the source of her pregnancy would be called into question. And if it was decided that this came about because of adultery, well, Jewish law permitted stoning for adultery. So if her story wasn't believed, this was theoretically a possibility. And on top of that, there was on top of this danger, intense social ridicule would have followed Mary around in her circles. Her reputation was at stake. And that's no small matter in such a tight-knit community as this. Submitting to the will of God for Mary and submitting to the will of God, to the word of God in our lives is indeed costly. But this is a cost God's people, you and I, are called to bear. Living the Christian life isn't a costless endeavor. When we identify the true king and we relate to Christ as king, simply, simply put, it's going to be costly. This cost may look different depending upon the culture in which you live. It might look different depending upon the relationships that you've been called to embrace in your community, in your family lives, or wherever else. And it might look different depending upon what your specific calling in the local body is. But there will definitely be a cost when we're relating with, to Christ as king. Because relating to Christ as king means that the way we think about ethics, the source of our ultimate hope, the way we relate to others, or even down to the way that we handle our finances, everything we do, everything implicit in our worldview, is fundamentally different than what's considered normal. Continuing with this shopping mall metaphor that Smith painted for us that I alluded to earlier, whereas the calling of the shopping mall is to turn us into consumers, those who consume for our worth, who bow to the god of consumerism, where we fundamentally treat ourselves, when we relate to Christ as king, we're called fundamentally to give of ourselves. This is the backward nature of biblical fullness that scripture paints for us. Often, You know, It seems to me that when we think of the cost associated with being a Christian, so often I think we we only think about embracing Christ as primarily a cost to bear social stigma in a culture where Christianity is no longer a virtue. Often this is looked at in terms of we carry a vastly different ethical standard from the ethical standard the world carries. And while that's certainly part of it, that's part of the cost of discipleship, that's not only about what the cost of discipleship is about. The cost of discipleship is a calling, I think first and foremost, towards costly, sacrificial love. It's a lifelong calling to disciples wherein we're called to lose so that others can win. It's a calling to give not just 10% of our time and money, it's a calling to give until it hurts. It's a calling to consider others better than ourselves, even when that sacrificial outlook hasn't or won't be reciprocated by others. But the reason, the very reason we're called to embrace this cost is because when we relate to Christ as king, the one who gave himself so that we might become rich, when we relate to Christ as king, the way we relate to others is fundamentally changed and shaped by the will of the king. And the reason we can cry with Mary, let it be to me according to your word, is because we have encountered the only king that's worthy of bringing all that we are before him. So to wrap this up then, a theology of fullness, what we've really been talking about today, begins by realizing in a very vivid way the extent and the reality of our emptiness and brokenness. It begins with a vivid understanding that things are frankly just not the way they're supposed to be in our lives and even in the world at large. But this God-given realization is only the start. Then we move to encountering the true king as he speaks to us in his word the very word of God by the Holy Spirit, who drives these words into our hearts and opens up for us the rich tapestry of promises that are to be found in Jesus Christ. And then the way we relate to this King in our daily walk, in the daily rhythms of our lives, is one of humble submission, ready and willing to be used by Him in whatever ways that He calls us. True biblical fullness or human flourishing, or wholeness, whatever we want to call it, isn't a product of our checking account. It's not a product of our morality. It's a product of Jesus Christ, who's worked in your life if you're a Christian, is working even now, and will continue to work in the future to eradicate all pain and all tears. True human flourishing finds its locus in the beautiful movement of the gospel. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have filled us with all good things, that you've given to your people the Holy Spirit, and that when we come to worship you and bow down to you, when we try to understand the word of God, even the only reason we can is because of the Holy Spirit ministering in our hearts and ministering among our body this morning. So we pray as, as we consider these things, as we consider what actually biblical fullness is, that you would reorient our predilections, you would reorient our assumptions, and that we would begin through our sanctification to begin living more and more in line with this biblical vision of what fullness really is about, and that you would strip away from our hearts all of those idols and those false gods that we can so readily cling to. We love you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.